0: Open source plays a key role in today's world of technology businesses. Today, the impact of open source seems obvious. From Kubernetes to distributed databases to cloud providers, so much of our software is powered by open source. But it was not always this way. Bruce Perens was one of the earliest figures in the world of open source. He collaborated with Eric S. Raymond, the author of Cathedral and the Bazaar, and he also developed a differing belief set from Richard Stallman, who was another foundational advocate of open source. Bruce Perens worked as an engineer at Pixar from 1987 to the year 2000. Bruce joins the show to give a history of open source and talk about his experience in the software industry, as well as modern policies around open source. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Bruce Perens, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you about open source, but you have a very interesting background. You were an engineer at Pixar from 1987 to 2000. Tell me about Pixar in its earliest days.
1: So I joined Pixar as employee number 63, and this was in... 1987 i had in 1981 joined a place in the east called the nyit computer graphics lab and that was the laboratory that was the predecessor of pixar it was at a university that isn't really well known and they had a lab where students weren't allowed and where they were essentially inventing feature film computer graphics And all of the Pixar founders had worked there. They had actually just left to go to work for George Lucas when I came in and I eventually followed them to Pixar. But I started this as a disk operator and a disk operator made $2.15 per hour. And we had one VAC 780. It became two later on. So... If you know what a MIPS is, those things ran at one MIPS. And your computer today, probably 2,000 per core, and it's got more than one core. And this was before the days when we had automatic programs that made sure your disk was consistent. So we had to do that manually. If you're a sysadmin, you know something called FSCK. Well, we didn't have that. And if something broke in the file system, it took a reasonable amount of skill to fix it. And the file systems were very fragile. So you went through a process after every boot in single user mode. And if it was really broken, it took a kernel programmer to fix the file system. So I worked there and back then a frame buffer which is the equivalent of an eight bit graphics card costs $70,000. And that was in 1981 dollars. And we used to wire three of them together to make RGB. So imagine what that thing cost. And the very cheapest VGA card that you can get now, because we're talking 640 by 480, is more powerful than the equipment that cost us 200 something thousand dollars at the time and you can imagine how slow it was to make graphics as well and then i got to pixar and of course in 1987 the equipment was a little better but there's actually a constant in computer graphics which is if it takes less than a minute to render the scene in a single frame we're going to add stuff. So as computers have gotten more powerful, and you can see the difference if you go look at the original Toy Story and look at modern Pixar films or other computer graphics films. We couldn't do hair very well. We In Toy Story, there are no human faces that you really get to see. No adult faces. You see Andy a little. and. You know, the kid faces are are obviously very abstracted versus what you might see in computer graphics today where, you know, things look real and we couldn't do real then. So computer graphics has improved quite a lot, mostly because the processors got more powerful and we got the potential to have more of them in parallel. There was no such thing as the cloud. Back when we started doing this, we did parallelize quite a bit because we could render a frame separately. And of course, they're 24 frames per second in a film. So we had rooms full of processors that were each rendering a frame at any one time. And I think for Toy Story, we had rooms full of Sun Microsystems pizza box workstations. They were actually meant to sit on a desk. They were a couple of inches tall. And we just made big stacks of these things. And it was all a temporary setup. So we had portable air conditioners in that room roaring away. And, of course, we knew that by the end of the film, the workstations would be worth nothing, that, you know, computers depreciate faster than fresh fruit. So this was always a setup we meant to use for only one film. It was a very exciting place to work because we were making a field, this field of photorealistic feature film, and somehow the Security and Exchange Commission let us do our IPA just as we were coming out with Toy Story, our IP initial offering. They let us do it. (laughs) Yes, not beer, initial public offering. And they let us do it just as Toy Story was coming out. So that was a lot more publicity than I think a IPO would normally have. And
0: so it was fun. Can I just ask, what was the interaction between engineers and the story creators in the Pixar movie development process? Like I I read Creativity Inc., that, that book about Pixar, which was fantastic, but I'd love to hear it from an engineer that was deep in the process of building some of these systems. What was your interaction with the animators and the storytellers?
1: Well, the animators were pretty technical. Each animator on their workstation had A large number of sliders, I think, you know, at that point, Buzz's face probably had 50 sliders that changed parameters in it. And I walked around animation a reasonable lot just to see what was going on. During Toy Story, I went to all the rushes. So as the film developed, I was with the animators watching at least once a week as we played newly animated stuff and i knew quite a lot of them personally some of them i had worked with in the lab in new york before going to pixar and we all got along pretty well there wasn't really much of a divide at least at that time between the animators and the technical people now there was probably some resentment on the animator's part, because the software really stunk. I mean, we were doing this for the very first time, and this software had been developed at Lucasfilm since 1970. And I remember at the time a technical director had to know 19 computer languages, because we just kept doing different things through history. We'd invented our own languages. We'd used a lot of interpreted ones. So I think when you think of computer animation, you know, you may be thinking of programmers and animators, and there's also a technical director. So a technical director is a programmer who knows enough to do the coding but actually has some handle on the creative part as well. I did train to be a technical director but I saw how bad the software was and decided to keep working on its development.
0: So was there a release process like when I think about the creation of a movie that has a deeply technical engineering bent to its you know end-to-end process I'm just trying to think through you know it's it's not like a continuous delivery process would exist in software today. What was the creation and release process? I guess it was it must have been more waterfall ish
1: yeah it it was pretty waterfall ish and i I don't think that they did a freeze for a film. I think that they were constantly fixing bugs all through. The film because the animators would come up with stuff. I actually not directly my fault. It was a piece of software that I wrote that someone else copied into the animation system, but I hadn't written it for the animation system at all. I broke the rendering system for a good couple of months while people looked for a file descriptor leak, which was really hard to find at the time. So that was the largest time that I, I ran into, well, we're trying to get new software out with all these features, and it it just breaks totally unpredictably. And Tom Duff, who is a pretty famous systems programmer, finally found the problem.
0: Did you ever interact with Steve Jobs in, in the process of your time at Pixar?
1: Well, I interacted with Steve Jobs all of the time. And... Steve was there on my first day at Pixar. I got to meet him and talk with him reasonably soon. He would come around to look at what we were doing on the programming and we were making new software. So Steve would always come around for demos and things. Steve always had an open door on his office and I would walk in and talk with Steve and I just, you know, didn't really feel anything unusual about that, but I think some people might have been a little intimidated by Steve and might not have done that. And I was very young and probably somewhat of a aggressive ass kind of guy. (laughs) And so I, I just had no problem talking with Steve and also pushing back on Steve I seem to do a lot of the pushing back on Steve in the role of talking about staff issues. And I remember the last time I spoke with Steve jobs was I was leaving Pixar. I was going to work on Linux and open source. And I walked into Steve's office and said, you still don't believe in this open source stuff. And Steve said, well, you know, I had a lot to do with making two of the world's three great operating systems. And by that, Steve meant Next OS, because he at the time had the Next Workstation company, and Mac OS. And he considered the third one was Windows. Unix wasn't even in there. And he said, and we needed a billion-dollar research lab every time. So I don't think you're going to be able to do it. So that was where we left it. I shook Steve's hand, said bye. never spoke with Steve again. Steve wasn't really one to speak with ex-employees. Emailed him once or twice. I don't know if he got it. Just about PR issues. Because people would interview me and they'd ask about Pixar. So Steve, I think. It was really only a year or two after we had that conversation Apple decided to put open source software the KDE browser's renderer in the Safari web browser and Steve got up on stage at Macworld in front of a slide that said open source we love it so I won that argument but Of course, Steve being Steve never admitted it to me.
0: You know, I think as a jumping off point into open source, I guess I'll just ask, when did you get heavily involved in the world of open source?
1: Well, I did my first piece of open source software at Pixar, and it was probably pretty close to 1987 so gee i've been in this more than 30 years haven't i and so i made electric fence and i don't know how much of the audience are that old but it used to be that finding memory buffer overruns was just almost impossible so the c language has these buffer overruns and if you code them Your code just fails totally unpredictably in different places every time because it doesn't run the same way every time, and it doesn't get the same memory allocation every time. And this would just drive programmers crazy. And I created a program called Electric Fence, and what this would do is it would make every allocation two pages, at least. And the first page was your actual allocated memory. And the second page was a dead page. So if you touched that page, your program would immediately core dump. Or if you were in a debugger, it would stop. And so the side effect of this was that your buffer overruns immediately signaled themselves when they happened rather than signaling themselves with their effects which was that you'd have garbage memory here and there making your program do unpredictable things so that worked i gave it to everyone at pixar and i said well this is great let's let's put this out on the net and of course we had usenet back then pixar wasn't actually on the arpanet and so I put this out, I think, on comp.sources.sun on the Usenet, and I got my first introduction to the effect of open source, although this didn't at the time, of course, have an open source license. I sent it out, and someone picked it up, said, this is great. I need to put this where I work, but I hadn't written very good documentation, and person unknown to me until that point on the net wrote the documentation, and it was in my mailbox the following morning. So there was this effect of having a crowd work on software. And of course, I I put the documentation in the electric fence package. I gave it to everyone at Pixar and started sending out new versions of electric fence with that documentation so that introduced me to the effect of open source and i think i sort of got pushed toward open source by stuff that was going on at pixar at the time i think everyone felt that microsoft windows would be winning the operating system wars And one day, Steve made his peace with Bill, and I looked. At that time, I had an office directly across from Steve's. I could see into Steve's office from my desk. And this was not because I was important. I think it was because they wanted to keep an eye on me. And so I looked on Steve's desk one day, And the next workstation had been replaced with a Microsoft Windows uh, laptop, I think. And so Steven obviously made his decision that it was going to be a, a Windows future. And he told us that we would eventually put the Pixar animation system on Windows. And we weren't really happy about that certainly I was, and I think a lot of the other programmers felt it wasn't realistic that Windows at the time was a more difficult OS to program than Unix, specifically, I think, Sun and SGI Unix, especially for graphics. You know, graphics cards were in their infancy. And I think for personal reasons, I I just felt that, Unix was going to be the way to go. And I started working on Linux. And Linus at this point had put out version 0.9 with some large number of nines after it. And it was just, you know, adding another nine instead of going to 1.0 for a very long time. And at that time, it might not have had networking. And Alan was adding the networking. And I was sort of helping out with that a little, although I didn't have a really big role in the kernel at all. And I I did things like got someone else to release his networking software that helped the kernel developers. But Linux was really making it. I thought a lot more people were getting interested in it. I got interested in the GPL. I thought it really worked well and it incented people to contribute software and it had this incredible multiplier effect where the software would just get bigger and bigger. And so eventually we had a moment that was sort of when I determined to leave Pixar. And at one point long before Toy Story, Pixar had lost $40 million and Steve had the choice to fold it up, you know, fire us all or put more money in. And Steve wrote off all of what he had put more money in to that point, wrote off his entire $40 million investment in Pixar reorganize the company essentially and put in more money and at that time i had been at pixar for eight years and all of my employee stock vesting was reset to zero and i think on the second time i got less stock too so i found this very frustrating you know you work at at a company eight years you think you're going to make some stock Okay, now it's start all over again. So I would be at Pixar for 12 years before my stock vested. And during that time, Pixar turned around. We got our movies going. We had had previously a non-compete with Lucasfilm. So we had to make hardware and things. We couldn't make films. But the non-compete eventually ran out, and we made our deal with Disney. And... I decided on year eight that I had work until the stock vested and then I would leave. So as the end of stock vesting was coming up, I did inform my managers that I was leaving and I would do it on this particular day. And they said, OK, well, thanks for telling us. And and we agree with your plan and you know which was nice i mean they could have fired me that day i still would have had most of my stock and i did leave on the day that i got the last share and some point in there actually a a number of separate times sold off stock and paid off the mortgage on my home so i now could be a flake because I didn't have this tremendous debt on top of me. So I could work on open source and reasonable confidence that my family would not be out of their house and starving and i eventually went on to form linux capital group and we invested in a couple companies that didn't work out progeny linux systems ian murdoch was head and another uh, short-lived business that was going to do cryptography but the market turned and i had picked the wrong partners and i eventually rolled up that business and went to hewlett packard to be a manager
0: okay just just to to take a step back though what i mentioned in talking about is your beliefs around open source so you have a certain set of beliefs and, and you were interacting with richard stallman and eric s raymond and these people who are now you know parts of the open source historical lore i'd love to know how your beliefs around open source contrast with those of Richard Stallman, Eric Raymond, and the other people who were early names in the open source world?
1: Okay, well, I corresponded with Richard in the early 80s. We're talking 81, 82. Because I had followed the original announcement of GNU, I once heard that Richard was working with Intel and wrote him and said, why are you the free software guy working for Intel? They make proprietary software. And Richard wrote me back and said, Intel is paying me to work on free software. At that time, they were making the the GNU compiler work better on the Intel CPU. And a lot of the early people involved in debian and open source were also radio hams like bedell garby for example phil karn a lot of people who are still known in communications uh software today and i was corresponding with them on ham radio technology issues so i knew a lot of these people where my beliefs sort of gelled was that I believed in free software. I felt that free software was a great thing to do that it helped tremendous numbers of people, that for a programmer, it was actually more gratifying for me than working at Pixar because all of the software I did at Pixar would be end of life by the end of a film, if not before then everything I did for Pixar has been end of life and everything I've done in open source still has users. And as it happened, I mean, millions or even billions of users, because for example, busy boxes in so many telephones and wireless access points, it's just all over the place. So I like the idea of free software, but I didn't, want to rule out making proprietary software. For example, at home, I used Quicken, and I thought that Quicken was a really good example of where proprietary software works, that they were making money for it, that they had many paid maintainers. TurboTax is another example from the same company, the developers are TurboTax. They're not programmers. They're accountants. So those were places where I thought proprietary software worked very well. And I developed this understanding that open source works very best for infrastructure kinds of software to a great extent, and that companies can afford to work on open source wherever it's not business differentiating so what does that mean say your amazon amazon at one point had a notification system that said people who bought this book also bought these three books and half the time the person would order one of those three that it recommended and all of the expense for amazon was putting the first book in the box the profit was significantly larger when they put a second book in the same box and shipped it to the customer now when that recommendation came out it was the first system of its kind it was a business differentiator the other bookstores this is when amazon was was still a bookstore did not have a similar system in their online systems that was business differentiating for amazon the customers saw it it made amazon's business visibly better than the other businesses in contrast amazon could have told all of their competitors everything they knew about apache and php and it would have helped them all work more efficiently because amazon could have distributed the cost and risk of developing apache and php among other companies But what made them important to their customers was all these business differentiating things, not the infrastructure. So I got to see open source as having a role in what for many companies was actually a duality where maybe 95% of the software that they did was supporting in nature that they could share the development as open source and it would actually reduce their software development costs. And then they could take that money and put it on the 5% of software that actually was business differentiating and that made them look different to their customers, made their business work better, and that they could not open source until it lost its differentiating value. So having developed this whole philosophy of, of how open source works in business, and I wrote this up in a paper called The Emerging Economic Paradigm of Open Source, I realized I was in a fundamentally different place than Richard, because Richard wanted a world to be all free software, and, and you know what, that would be a very nice world, let's not kid ourselves, And I was talking about how software works in business, where there was a role for open source and there was a role for proprietary. Now, Eric, I think Eric also understands that there is a role for open source and proprietary, but I've never really been able to pin down Eric on what his philosophy is and And if you read Eric, he goes into a lot of issues that aren't related to open source at all. And I'm actually kind of careful about that. When evangelizing open source, for example, you won't find out how I feel about Trump during this podcast or or how I feel about abortion or anything like that because... If we talked about those things, you might tune me out based on my feelings about those and never listen to my message about open source. And I wanted people to hear my message about open source. Eric doesn't restrict himself that way. Eric talks about whatever Eric wants to talk about. And I think it makes him a worse evangelist.
0: So today we've reached a time where open source has a tremendous impact on the software industry and there's a a strong interplay between corporations and the open source community. That was not always the case. Can you just give me your perspective for how and why the relationship between large corporations and open source has evolved to the state that it's in today? And I guess maybe in that answer you can give some background about your experience with Microsoft and and HP and and your you know your story with open source there because your your history and the history of Microsoft's perspective on open source has some some interesting overlap you might say
1: yes and and the ending is especially interesting because in the end the pigs fly but anyway <laughs> well At the start, no one would listen to us. And that's really important to know because if if you look at the open source definition, I, I did a really good job and it stood for 22 years now, but I had no lawyers helping me. No lawyer would help us. We didn't have money to pay for one and none were volunteering. And, of course, if I had the help of a lawyer, I might have done a few things differently. So there's been this tremendous development where we started out sort of being anathema, a bunch of weird, maybe pinko kind of guys who eventually the world just accepted us. And the speed with which that happened, you know, still astonishing. At companies, open source was a bottom-up revolution. So what that means is that management obviously was not starting open source initiatives. Management would have been horrified to understand that their programmers were working with open source. The law department wasn't aware of this, and when they did, they often had A great deal of learning and adaptation to do. But what would happen would be an engineer would start to work on something and and say, well, gee, we don't need to develop something. We can just take the open source software and use it. And that person might not have had much concept of licenses, but they realized that the software was in some way usable. And so we saw things like Apache, get into businesses, because at the time, everyone had to be on the web. That was an imperative. And how do you get on the web? How do you make your website work? Well, open source tools were a really good and easy way to do that. And the web was a good fit for open source. It was all systems programming the interpretive languages that people used to develop websites they were a good fit again they were systems programming they were they were infrastructure they were the kinds of things that open source especially in the early days really did best and so companies did start to pick it up at the time also microsoft software wasn't that good i mean everyone would tell jokes about the blue screen of death because the software would crash all the time it did not have the memory protection that we would insist on today and they didn't have much competition i mean apple was in a very different market was not a direct competitor to microsoft and that is its own problems in any case So I I think the best thing that ever happened to Microsoft Windows was the Linux system because Microsoft suddenly had a competitor and had to be good. And quality obviously increased because Linux from very early days did the whole Unix paradigm where it ran protected memory, your process was protected. It couldn't ruin another process's memory. We had understood things about how to keep systems from crashing from Unix since the 1970s. And all of that went into Linux immediately. Uh, whereas Windows, they, they kind of copied the vax pms api if i'm not mistaken but they didn't really get the memory protection right for a long long time and part of that also was the hardware they had to run on obviously cpus improved as time went on and got protection that i i think might not have been in 8086 so We had a a system that was very desirable to industry. There was also the BSD system, but the BSD system lagged behind technically at that time. The BSD researchers were using a kind of disk that was much more expensive than the kind that computer amateurs and individuals could get their hands upon. So BSD didn't really work as well as Linux for a lot of people because it didn't work on their hardware until later on. And actually, I think the license had some effect, too. I think the GPL was instrumental to the growth of Linux at a time when people were less willing to contribute software. And the BSD license did not mandate that they contribute that software. So I, I think that BSD expanded more slowly because of that. Now, at the time, the world of software had become very intellectual property oriented, mostly copyright. And you really can trace that back to Bill Gates being upset about, well, I made this Microsoft program and everyone pirated it instead of paying for it so the the paradigm if it hadn't started before and i think if you were a big computer customer it might not have started before because you paid for the hardware and the software was always free because it it wouldn't run on anything else and there wasn't really a reason to protect the software that you know competitors had different instruction sets they had different hardware connected to the cpu so everyone at the time was very impressed with the growth of microsoft as a business where obviously it started with two guys and it dominated the software industry and we had before then the whole world of media where copyright has obviously been important since victor hugo wrote le Misérables*. And so we were going against this whole intellectual property paradigm. We weren't throwing it out completely, but we were using it to do the opposite. That's why it's copy left instead of copyright. We used copyright to make people share and instead of to, to make people not copy. And... Oh gosh, I remember the famous Linux is a cancer that eats all your intellectual property. And that was so great for us. I mean, you know, there's Craig Mundy. He's the vice president of Microsoft. And he is obviously driven totally insane by what we're doing. And people looked at Microsoft and said, hey, look, these guys are really scared. Let's look at this Linux stuff. So I, I think that Microsoft, for years, was just the perfect foil. Because everyone loves the fight, and the press loves a fight. They write about it, and I could get in fights with Microsoft and be covered by all of the online press and Microsoft would say something and reporters would call me up and so we didn't spend a dime on public relations we did we had a PR person who sort of volunteered she's still with me today she actually made a ton of money because I've sent her a lot of businesses As time has gone on and and more companies got interested in open source. But she was a volunteer. So it was just very entertaining and exciting how the world was sort of beating right to our door, beating a trail to our door. And it was very interesting how business took it up because they looked at, oh, gee, we could pay millions and millions of dollars for Microsoft desktop licenses, or we could just get free software. And, and the free software was attractive, and it was more attractive because, for the most part, it didn't break. And it was also more attractive because programmers hate isolating bugs and then talking to the vendor about fixing them because it always puts the programmer in a pleading relationship like here i've got a bug first i've got to convince the company that it is a bug you know so i've got to convince the company to listen to me about the bug and i've got to convince the company to fix the bug And then I've got to wait for the company to fix the bug. And it could be years. And this was very frustrating to program. And most programmers would have liked to have the source code and just fix the bug. And so they got it. And they started doing it. And it worked. And this was just this, you know, Obviously, Richard Stallman talks about freedom, but this was freedom in in another way because suddenly I didn't have to plead with a company and I could get my work done. And, and yeah, that is the freedom that Richard's talking about. And so I think it, it just worked incredibly in companies. And we're at the point today where... Business is just built on open source software. And, you know, I I sit back and wonder, well, when's this going to change? And I don't see it happening. You know, will open source die someday? You know, movements eventually die. Will there be a resurgence of intellectual property? Will, Will software businesses figure out how to be so good that proprietary software replaces open source. Well, they're not doing it. So this is very fun. And it's it's just fun sitting here, you know, at least 22 years after I've started things and sometimes even longer. And just seeing all of these threads that I worked on a very long time ago come together. And the world is doing what I told the world to do you know, all that time ago and and never thought I'd really be quite so successful. So this is, is very entertaining to watch it happen.
0: Okay, well, final question. I'd just like to get your perspective on some of the licensing changes that have occurred in some of the open source businesses. So the changes to the MongoDB licenses, the Elastic license, Do these things matter? What do they symbolize in the history of open source?
1: Well, this is a blast from the past, and and I say that sarcastically, because before we had open source, we had educational use-only software, we had shareware, we had software with very limited and controlling licenses. And to use entertainment term, none of this stuff had legs. It didn't get very popular. It didn't build big communities. It it didn't have the sharing and getting fixed by many people paradigm that we have now. And so we have a number of licenses which would like to be open source with less freedom. And I think there are a lot of people who kind of don't get that when you start taking out the freedom, it doesn't work anymore. And so I look at all of these open source with less freedom licenses, and I'm mostly just bored. And the only part of it I really reject and and will keep rejecting is not that people are making these bad licenses you can make any license you want but that they would like to call the license open source when it really isn't and there are lots of people who are saying well Things have changed and the open source initiative should relax the rules and, and let's have these licenses with less freedom that are called open source. There's one particular VC who's particularly obnoxious about it. I, I've gotten I've actually invited him to this commercial open source conference that we're having, so I'll probably get to discuss it with him a bit. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to change, fundamentally change the rules of open source. And thus, people have started to make other campaigns. So Heather Meeker, the attorney, she's my attorney. She's very good. And uh, another attorney have something called polyforms. And PolyForms is a home for licenses that are not open source. Maybe they're as close to open source as they feel they can get. And I don't really see it taking off. I help them out a bit because they're my friends and I didn't want them to get things wrong. And most of all, I didn't want them to call it open source. And so they're not calling it open source and I'm fine. But it's boring. <laughs> and open source is more exciting because all of these wonderful things that happen about it, which licenses with less freedom don't get, all of those synergies. So, my message to the people who would like to use these various licenses many who are making software used by software as a service companies. Please use any license you like. If it doesn't comply with the open source definition, please don't call it open source and we'll get along.
0: Bruce Perens, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you.
1: It's been great to talk with you. Thanks very much.